Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of Engendered, our guest is Nicole Perry, a registered psychologist with a practice in Edmonton, Canada. For the past 10 years, she has worked with survivors of domestic violence and sexual assault and uses an approach called somatic experiencing, a body-based therapy for healing trauma. She is known for her work as a feminist counselor and helps her clients work on setting boundaries, seeing problems within their context, and making healthier decisions in their lives. We will be speaking with Nicole about how her feminist collaborative approach is used to help both her survivor and non-survivor clients. Welcome, Nicole. Hi. Thank you for joining us. I'm really excited to uh, learn about your background and what feminist counseling means. Uh, so let's start with that. What does it mean to be a feminist counselor? Well, thanks for having me. And I always say that being a feminist counselor starts with just being a feminist and that shows up uh, everywhere I go. So it shows up with me in my life and it shows up in the therapy room too. Um, but feminist counseling specifically, um, it can mean uh, taking a much more collaborative approach than traditional therapies so that I'm working with the client. I'm walking with them through whatever they're going through rather than telling them what to do as if I'm the expert on their life. And had you always applied this approach? In other words, did you proactively define on your website and to your clients that I'm a feminist counselor before the treatment even started? Yeah, um, I think so. Um, it's always been a part of who I am. And of course, I've learned a lot more about what that means as I've developed in my career. Um, but as soon as people walk in the room, um, well, I mean, as soon as they book the appointment, they know that that's who I am. And then I'm sharing that as soon as they walk in the room a little bit more what that means to me and what that might mean for us together as well. So I guess that means um, that people who are either confused by the word feminist or are ambivalent about it, they self-select and they would not work with you? Or do you actually have some of them sort of interrogate that with you and, and uh, dip their toe in? Most of the time I'm getting people who already identify as feminists and are like, finally, someone who, um, you know, I can trust with what I'm experiencing and who isn't going to um, question my experiences or make me explain to them um, what I'm going through. Um, they can just dive right in. Sometimes I get people who maybe weren't sure about the word or what that meant, but they were intrigued about the idea of a more collaborative approach. Um, they were intrigued about something that was more um, contextual and that sort of put things where they belonged um, instead of, you know, blaming people for their problems. And, and how does that um, collaboration actually take place in the conversation? You reference, for example, that your approach directly addresses the, quote, real social, political, and cultural environment that the individual faces, unquote. So 
Do you just come out and say, well, that sounds like something that a lot of people face, blah, 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 in the workplace or in relationships because of patriarchy? <laughs> or or what? how does, you know, that come up in conversation when you're addressing the, the larger um, systemic contributions? Sometimes, um, like it might depend on the client, how um, blunt I am about it. Um, like I'm thinking about clients who maybe have never heard of um, the cycle of abuse, for example, but they're describing an, an abusive relationship that they're in. And I might say something like, you know, this this pattern you're describing in your relationship, like it sounds so familiar to me. It's like I've seen it before. And I'll start drawing out for them the stage of, you know, this sounds like tension building. And then I'll just basically describe what they've described. I'm like, does this look familiar to you? And they're like, yes, yes, yes. And I'm like, I might know something about that. Is it okay if I tell you a bit about this? Um, and then, um, you know, I'll help them understand how it fits into a wider um, a wider context and a wider pattern that isn't just about what they're going through and something um, that they're experiencing in, in their one relationship, but that a lot of people experience in their relationships. So what's their typical response when you share that their experience is uh, not unique um, and it's part of this wider pattern? Are they o- open and receptive to hearing it or does it bother them because it, it becomes almost like overwhelming, like, oh, well, that if this is a systemic problem, how can we solve it? I think that's a good question. Um, it's like both. But one of the important things that I always do is ask for consent before I'm giving people information so as not to overwhelm them with too much. Like, is it okay if I share this with you? And then we're really slowing down um, to how is it to hear that Um, and really taking the time for them to feel what it's like emotionally, to notice what it's like physically, um, to to hear these things. So I I think you're right that it can be a lot. Um, And in my practice, and I'm just diving right in. Um, I know that the nervous system um, can really take in so much and we tend to speed right through. So I'm all about slowing down. Mm-hmm. And of course, you're asking for consent. You're modeling what consent should look like in their lives, I'm guessing, which is probably also can be very refreshing um, in that context too, where you're um, you're expecting that the person that you're in therapy with is this elevated expert and you're sort of saying through your, you know, example that this is an equal relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And with, with clients who know me a little bit better or we've worked together a bit longer, we can go even further, you know, after I say, um, you know, is this okay? Or, or how would you feel about doing this? And they say, yeah, yeah, let's go for it. I say, great. How did you know that this was a yes? Mm. Um, and they'll check in with themselves and say, oh, well, you know, I felt like this leaning in or I felt a sort of lightness about it. Or on the other hand, how did you know it was a no for you? It doesn't have to be a yes. I'm, I'm curious though. So, oh, it was like my body wanted to close in. Great. I'm so interested in that. And then do you draw connections between their physical responses to your inquiries and their physical responses to things that happen in their relationship? 
Um, the part of the reason I'm asking them about those responses is because I want them to get more and more in tune with their yeses and nos um, and what it is inside of them that is giving them those cues so that they can keep listening to those in their daily lives. How do you know that there's growth, that they're more attuned to those cues and being responsive to them? Um, when people can start to name what's happening inside, that's always a wonderful thing. Mm. Um, that's always a growth piece. Like when I ask them what's happening in you or how do you know that? And they can come up with a response. Mm. Um, I think I was like, yeah, that's so great. Uh, or when I say, Hey, do you want to do this? And they say, no, I'm like, yeah, that's really great. Who said no to me? Um, I'm really impressed with that. What are the typical problems that your clients come to you to resolve? Most of the time, the biggest things that I'm working with are um, sexual trauma, um, setting boundaries, and working through shame. And what, what is the shame from, from the sexual trauma? Sometimes, yeah. So I was going to say, sometimes these can all, you know, um, go together and sometimes not. Um, so it could be shame related to traumatic experiences. Um, unfortunately, that happens where um, when we've been violated, um, it's like the other person's shame or the shame of a traumatic event. It's like it just can go on to us, even though we've done nothing wrong. But the nature of this kind of traumatic event can leave us feeling ashamed. Um, it can be um, shame around identity, um, shame from childhood experiences, um, shame around body, um, all sorts of stuff. And the identity part, are you referring to um, maybe your non-binary clients who come to you around those gender expression, gender orientation issues? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And what happens if they're, do you work with adolescents or younger folks? Some, some teens and, and young adults as well as um, older adults too. Yeah. And when the, the younger folks come to you, are the parents bringing them to you because they're expecting you to help them work through those issues and come to a place where there is no shame or they're expecting you? Is it like conversion therapy? I luckily haven't had any of that. Um, I think most of the teens that I'm seeing, um, you know, luckily are, are, have been really supported and have been in a place where um, they've been surrounded by more uh, messages of being really accepting of their gender and their body, um, which is really cool for me to see. Um, so I think when I'm thinking of, you know, shame around identity, I'm actually thinking of some of my older clients who grew up maybe with parents or, or maybe certain religious backgrounds, um, where they didn't feel that was possible or they weren't accepted, um, and are now working through that, um, in adulthood. So what would happen if you weren't aware, for example, that parents were bringing in their child for conversion therapy and you came to understand this to be the case at some point during the relationship, would it be appropriate for you to try to initiate um, some sort of conversation and or relationship for the parents to have with a help provider themselves? Or would that be kind of going beyond your boundary as a therapist for the young person? Hmm. 
you know, I've never had to think about this so far um, because it hasn't come up yet. Like I know, um, yeah, my, my initial duty would be to the person that I'm working with, that teen. And I always say when I'm working with teens that um, my preference is that our work stays between the two of us um, and that their priorities are my priorities. So um, their priorities, I'm assuming, would be accepting their gender and that would be my priorities with them. And so that's what we'd be working on. Definitely not working on conversion therapy. Um, and I'd be helping them move through shame and doing all that. Um, and I think I'd be, I'd be wary of, you know, what would be safe in terms of, um, how much we bring in the parent or guardian, um, and making sure that, that I'm prioritizing the teenager, um, the client that I'm working with and, and prioritizing safety so that they can keep coming and keep accessing the help that they need. And then if it is possible, I know that there's lots of supports for parents um, who are working through this stuff that, that they can access all on their own. What about with couples? Do you work with couples as well? Not anymore. I'm focusing on individuals and groups. I've come to learn that relationship work is an entirely other skill set that has a lot of challenges of its own. And uh, so I'm focusing on the individual and group work instead. Can you share with our listeners why it would be a conflict of interest for you to be someone's individual therapist, but also their couple's therapist? Yes, that's a good question. So these are such good questions, by the way. I'm like, you're getting my brain thinking about all the ethical dilemmas. Um, I've I've lived through them. That's why. (laughs) Okay. Um, So, and I think this is actually a common mistake of of young or new therapists, by the way, is you kind of want to do it all. And so you can get like, oh, you know, someone has connected with me um, as a couple and now they want one-on-one. So I should offer it to them. But I think we want to be cautious about that. And you want to be cautious as a client too, because of the possibility of conflict of interest and the possibility of harm. Um, We always have to think as clinicians as what is the worst possible scenario that could happen. Okay, so the reason is when you're working for a couple, you're thinking about what's best for this couple. In essence, the couple is your client. Um, And so then it becomes about, you know, what's best for the relationship. You know, how can I make sure that the, the relationship is prioritized? When you're working for an individual, you're thinking, how can I help this individual person? How can I prioritize their individual needs? Um, And it's very different work. Um, So I think it gets tricky to try to do both um, because what's best for an individual might be different than what's best for the couple. So for example, in cases uh, where your client is experiencing domestic violence or abusive behavior in their relationship by their partner, that would be something that I'm guessing if if it was a couples therapy kind of situation, if it were revealed, it'd be hard for you to point out or have you pointed that out in the past? And then if you were, you know, working with that individual on their own, they might be engaged in different set of um, dynamics regarding how they receive that information. Mm-hmm. 
So, uh, yeah, this brings up so much for me because, um, when I did do couple work, I always appreciated being able to do, um, one session together with the couple and then break it apart to do, um, like at least, you know, 30 minutes with each one to assess for safety issues like that, because how can you do, uh, relationship work when there's a possibility that domestic violence is occurring? To me, and I think this is um, sort of understood across the board for most therapists who have any training in domestic violence, it's not safe to do relationship work when there's a safety issue. Um, Because when a couple comes in to do relationship work, you're asking them to be vulnerable with each other. You're asking them to share with each other intimacies. You're asking them to share with each other, you know, what is it that you need from each other? Um, And if you do that in a domestic violence situation, you're basically setting them up to get hurt at home. So one of the guests that we've had on our show is Tom Digby, who wrote a book called Love and War, How Militarism Shapes Sexuality and Romance. And in our conversation... He basically posits that heterosexual relationships in the way that they're traditionally, you know, the, the, if, if everybody um, inhabits traditional gender roles and in the way that they're traditionally imagined, they're set up to fail. Um, so in that respect, if there are dynamics, power dynamics, unhealthy power dynamics in a traditional heterosexual relationship, wouldn't you say that all couples therapy in that way is inherently almost set up to fail unless those individuals are, have already worked through their individual issues that are, you know, gender related and, and that have been contributed by systemic factors? Oh, I think I'd. Yeah, that confuses me a little bit. I think I'd have to understand more what he means by that. Well, that in traditional gender roles, uh, first of all, that our society acculturates boys and girls to inhabit, you know, very strict gender roles. And boys are basically um, shaped to be soldiers and they're... Um, status is elevated and they're rewarded um, in groups by being dominant, uh, by using violence as a way mm. to resolve conflict, uh, and by you know getting status through the combination of all of that um, in both their own peer groups as well as in society. And so, for example, the heterosexual courting ritual is about um, basically getting the woman, you know, to submit in some ways to his interest. Um, and even in the pursuit of, um, a relationship, if, if there is no initial quote unquote consent that, um, successfully obtaining it is, is a, is a virtuous thing. Um, even though from a, legal perspective, it may be considered mm-hmm. coercive. Um, but that's what we as a society have deemed is um, romantic mm. and accepted and expect to receive um, in a relationship to get cues of whether someone is interested or not, um, even mm. if we are not. And so that's, you know, in that context, then heterosexual relationships, there's this expectation from one another that they're going to play their part to give cues to the other of their interest and of their commitment, which if then the 
you know, either or both parties in that relationship move to a place of greater evolved thinking that involves equality and they start to question these roles that they inhabit, it might um, disrupt the balance in their relationship, which to begin with was already imbalanced. Hmm. It all sounds very fascinating. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So so knowing that, like, you know, what do you think about the concept of couples counseling then? Because inherently, at least I'm saying in heterosexual relationships because of the um, pre-existing power dynamics. Well, I'll I'll have to speak from my limited experience, but um, because as I said, I'm not doing much relationship counseling anymore. So in, in my understanding, it's based on this idea of attachment needs, which is really about survival. It's about how do I connect with this adult person that I'm connected to? Um, and through um, studies over recent decades, they found that connection um, is really something that is so central to who we are as human and it actually can help us with things like getting through painful events getting through stressful situations Um, and so when people come to couples counseling it's really about looking at how are you uh, attaching to each other Um, is that um, coming from a securely attached place where you can recognize each other's needs Or is it coming from a place of a more anxious, attached place where you're afraid of abandonment? Or um, it's coming from maybe a wound where you've been really hurt before, and so you're going to put a wall up um, so that you don't get hurt again. And in couples counseling that I've been exposed to, it becomes about helping those two people look at what are the underlying needs and fears in this relationship. Um, And how do we address those together? So kind of breaking it down into that, that part that's like, let's really look at the deeper things that are going on in this relationship and how everyone can get what they need. Well, that's, you know, going back to Tom's work, that's kind of also something that boys and men are socialized to do, which is not be in touch with their emotions uh, Mm -hmm. and not to not to know them, not to name them, not to express them, or at least only to express them within a certain range. Uh, mm. And so have you had clients, male clients who you've worked with who are coming to you for those issues and how do they respond to your feminist approach? This is one of those areas that I actually really celebrate other people doing. Um, I have a few colleagues that have been so good at working with with males who um, have grown up in a world, you know, as we all have, where, where men have been taught not to feel and maybe don't have the emotional language and are struggling now to get in touch with themselves. Um, and learn how to understand um, what they're feeling and to name it and to talk to their partners about it. Typically, because of how I, how I you know, sort of name myself as a feminist counselor, um, and I end up working with a lot of people in the feminist and queer community, I'm actually getting a lot of clients who are quite, um, quite aware of their emotions and quite able to sort of already um, be in tune with what they're already going through. 
Um, so it's different work. And they're probably aware also of the benefits of your approach. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I, I really appreciate when people are able to do the, the other side of that, because I think you're right. Like, yeah, in order to do that work, whether it's in the context of couples therapy or individual work, or maybe even both, um, we need to be able to name our own needs and understand um, how we're feeling emotionally, uh, physically, um, so that we can listen to that and find a way of honoring that. So the approaches that you use, um, one of them being somatic experiencing, is that the same as the body mapping workshops that you offer in group? Mm. That's an interesting overlap in that it is about connecting back um, to the body in some way. Um, So that's a theme. Um, Somatic experiencing is based on the work of Peter Levine. Um, He wrote Healing Trauma and uh, a few other books like that. And it's this idea of when we go through a traumatic experience, which could be anything from uh, sexual assault, childhood abuse, um, to a car accident, a fall, etc. When we go through something like that, our, our nervous system responds. It goes into fight, flight, or freeze. And sometimes all that nervous system energy gets stuck or thwarted. Um, we're not able to come back down into feeling re-regulated and grounded again. Um, maybe there wasn't someone safe to run to, or it all happened so quickly. Um, and we're left feeling still frozen, still stuck, or we're left feeling, uh, constantly hypervigilant. Like there's always something bad about to happen or, or maybe consistently, uh, angry, like we're in fight mode all the time. And so when that happens, um, which is more common for humans than it is for animals in the wild, the therapy is that we slowly, safely, and through containment, you know, can go back through the body and make space to process those, um, those past events and, and release any leftover activation so that they no longer have such a hold over our current lives. So at what point would you or would your client identify it's appropriate for that person to engage in a group workshop, either in addition to or maybe instead of, would it ever be instead of um, their individual work with you? Um, Some of my um, individual clients have decided to um, do a group with me after doing individual work for a time. Um, Some people sign up for a group before having ever met me. And in in the groups, like, for example, I just did a group on boundaries. Um, I do try to touch on some of these ideas around the body and, and, you know, give some ideas around, you know, listening to... um, listening to ourselves. Um, like for example, I have this model of listening to ourselves that I call whole body decision-making. And so that's about, you know, can you listen to, um, your head, you know, the pros and cons, can you listen to your heart? You know, what are your emotions telling you? 
And can you listen to your body, which might be the twist in your gut or um, a sense of tightness in your shoulders um, or anything at all that's going on inside your, your physical self and really try to find a way to get curious about all of those parts and then put that together to decide what you want to do, um, which as I had sort of mentioned earlier, might be, no, Nicole, I don't want to do that particular therapy. Or yes, let's turn down the blinds. Or um, no, I don't want to go out with that person. Um, This relationship feels unsafe to me. Or any myriad of other decisions um, that could come up in our lives. It's finding a way to um, sort of tune in and honor that so we can set our boundaries. Mm. And in the the work that you do with the groups, what kinds of challenges come up in that setting versus an individual one-on-one setting? Challenges. So um, being part of a group, we aren't able to do as much of the, um, like the one-to-one processing. Um, So if someone, um, as we're working through um, some of the boundaries, uh, you know, recognizes that maybe their boundaries are connected or their, their struggles with boundaries are connected to a trauma they've experienced, we might note that um, and, okay, this is probably a, a key piece for you to address. We can't then process it within the group, um, but we can sort of f- help them flag that um, so that they can process it in their one-to-one time. So someone who just started the work through a group workshop may then begin or initiate a relationship with you one-on-one in a counseling setting. Yeah, or uh, I might help them um, connect with another therapist. Okay. And on your website, you reference in terms of your definition of your feminist counselor goals, the importance of addressing the societal level problems and then creating opportunities for people through, quote, to create a social, institutional, political, and cultural revolution. Mm. Um, So I wonder, how does that show up and when does that show up in the relationship? Do you like sort of plant seeds throughout? Um, To me, that sounds like helping them to become activated in, in advocacy or activism around ending systemic oppression. Yeah, yeah. It's the sexism rather, sex is oppression. Yes. It's funny. This is going to be a a long answer maybe. Um, When I originally wrote that, my my intention was exactly that. I'll help people heal in, uh, or, you know, I'll walk with people through their healing. um, And then they may become activated to move into their own lives and take that healing. and, And they may, you know, move into doing activism in their lives um, it's actually turned out a little bit differently in that, um, so many of the people who've come to me are already identifying as activists and already doing quite a lot in their personal lives. And what I've ended up helping with is helping them listen to themselves, um, listen to their bodies, um, so that they can honor their boundaries um, so that they don't end up in a cycle of burnout. Mm, so it's more self-care work. Yeah, yeah. And of course, you know, because people are doing such hard work out there, they may also be witnessing trauma. 
Um, they may also have ex experienced trauma. And so we're doing the processing of that so that they continue to do their work sustainably. Um, so it's different than I thought. Um, but I feel like the message that I'm, I'm trying to give people is like, you know, it's okay to slow down. It's okay to listen to your body. Um, and although it may bring up guilt, um, that guilt isn't necessarily a sign that you're doing something wrong, just a sign that you're doing something different than what you've been taught. What about for, for clients who don't have access to the sort of theoretical framework or pedagogy around feminism? And do you, do you proactively offer them suggestions for books to read or articles or films to watch? Um, or do you wait for them to ask for that? Hmm. I'm thinking about that just because it's been a long time. Gosh, it's been so long, Terry. I actually can't think of an example to give you on that. I'm sorry, it's not a good answer to your no, question. No, no problem. Well, is there a protocol for not being proactive about it and waiting for the client to initiate? Or does it seem paternalistic, in other words, to say, hey, you know, these are really good books that I... I would read <laughs> um, to learn about these issues and maybe give you some context to what we're talking about, you know, more structurally. Or is that something like from a therapeutic perspective is not appropriate? Hmm. I, th I think where I'm struggling is it's just been so long since something like that has come up and um, that I, I can't place it in my mind. Like I, I know it's probably come up in the past, but um like so many of my clients are coming in quite aware. Uh -huh. So, okay, well, one example would be um, like a client I was talking to about, a, a younger client who was talking about the issue of like dating in the modern world and, and um, like feeling a lot of pressures to have sex before she was ready and sort of feeling like that was just the norm. And so as we were talking about this, I, I sort of mentioned the book, What You Really, Really Want by Jacqueline Friedman, um, which is a book that I really liked when it first came out. And I thought that she might really like it too, because it goes into sort of that recentering of, yeah, what is it that's important to you in a sexual connection, romantic connection, and just putting out that there are other possibilities. So. Yeah, I think when it's relevant to what that client is coming in with, but I'll, I'll definitely bring it up as, hey, I think this could really be up your alley um, and, and help them know that the thing that seems normal to them isn't necessarily what everyone um, feels or how it has to be. I hope that answers your question. Yeah. From my experience um, in New York City, at least, there's a a whole range. First of all, we are not as lucky as you guys are in Canada, where on your website, I saw you, not just you, but you have a whole list of other feminist counselors, which yeah. I guess, which I guess self-identify. So I've not even seen that as part of anybody's identity um, in New York City or even in the U.S. Um, so unfortunately, we are not as progressive in the approaches that we have here, but I certainly wish we could be. You know, when we're having conversations in New York, at least some of the advocacy uh, conversations that I'm participating in, there's a lot of variation in terms of the 
both the identity of the client and whether they would even call themselves that, whether they even understand what that means, both to themselves and then in the context of their relationship struggles, um, especially if they're a survivor of intimate partner violence mm. and it's gender-based. Um, they don't have the tools to understand and really problematize what's happening to them. And that, I think, is missing from the work that's being done in New York and in the in this country is just the move away from the consciousness raising um, groups that we had in the 70s, where there was a very explicit conversation around the role of structural sexism. Um, Right. And, and yeah. And so what I'm fearful of is that without that common knowledge, that base of understanding, there's less of a possibility of a feminist transformation uh, Mm. that will impact the individual's journey, right? Therapeutic yeah. journey. And and so that um, happened in New York. I, I had this with another guest. I had the conversation with another guest. But in a city this big, you would think that there would be a lot of discussion and work around um, anti-sexism and anti-oppression, specifically dealing with sexism. And what's happened is, in my opinion, the internalized sexism, the beliefs of survivors are being used against them under the guise of dealing with sexism, but actually to enable continued sexism. So a lot of these um, survivors that were in, involved in a pilot uh, demonstration project um, shared beliefs around how they thought that their abuser partner needed more services, that it was unfair that the survivors were getting so much um, more in services, which is completely untrue. <laughs> um, yeah. At least they're not getting what they need to leave and stay away. Um, yeah. And not from a holistic, you know, economic perspective, um, let alone just just safety. And that they were hoping that they could learn how to co-parent with their partners and how to um, have therapy. And if, if they only had therapy with their partners and their partners wouldn't abuse. And so oh. these... These were the words that were uttered from survivors, which were then used to justify piloting programs to demonstration project programs in New York to do just that. (laughs) And, And so I think without this feminist context, it's hard for those kinds of survivors to really recognize both the harm that they're doing to themselves and to other women. Yeah. And I shared with you a video which I think is can be easily co-opted as well, of women apologizing to men. I'll put the link in the show notes, but it was, from what I could tell, produced by this organization in Germany that's focused on kind of, I couldn't really, I, I don't know how to explain it, but it's like new age connections. <laughs> and it was not at all based in understanding systemic oppression and um, so these, this video was of all women basically apologizing to, to men for ways in which they, quote unquote, contributed to harming the men. And I, I wanted to get your feedback as to what you thought about both the video and the response to what I ended up writing in opposition to mm-hmm. the video. Yeah, that that was so awful. I think you're really right on when you frame it because as I watched that, um, what I heard was 
this is really the voice of the person who is the abuser um, coming through, who's probably said time and time again, it's your fault um, for making me act this way. If only you were not leading me on, if only you were you know, better at communicating, et cetera, et cetera. And survivors, people who've experienced abuse, of course, hearing that so many times, um, we take that on. Um, especially when that's the only voice you hear because you've been isolated um, and you hear it over the months and the years. And so you start to believe it and you start to then repeat that. And so when I hear people repeat those things in therapy, or I hear them repeat that in the video, um, my heart just sinks, you know, I, you know, I really, um, like, it really touches me that people who've experienced abuse can feel so ashamed, and can feel so blamed for what they've gone through. Um, So as a feminist therapist, I always want to say that wow, you know, it really, it really touches me that you're experiencing all this hurt right now about what you've gone through. I want to say, I want you to know that I don't think it's your fault, um, what you're going through. Um, And then I hope that we can work through that together. What do you say to someone who watches that video and sees it as a, um, a positive thing who who thinks that it's good that you know women are um acknowledging that they're also like we're all part of the problem of upholding you know patriarchal values if if that's what essentially what the video was trying to say that we're all part of the problem and we put too much blame on men um and that this is a very it's a way to um acknowledge accountability and that it's a compassionate loving expression of that. Yeah, I think it would be hard to know what to say because I'd imagine, you know, someone um, feeling that way has has maybe never experienced or worked with someone who's gone through um, an abusive relationship and seen, um, seen from a step back place the actual, you know, the real dynamics that are going on. And because if you had to, like, you'd be horrified um, watching a video like that. You'd really see um, the gaslighting that was at play. That was a beautiful description of it, I think, and right on point. That this was completely manipulative to make someone believe. It's totally crazy making to make someone believe that somehow they've caused their own abuse And I see it all the time, people questioning their own realities, thinking, am I somehow making this up? Am I somehow the one causing my abuse to happen? It's like, how could you? How could you possibly make someone else hurt you? You can't. You can't. What do you say to clients if, I'm guessing there are not a lot of them in your practice who feel this way, but if they come to you and say, I want to fix my abuser, I want to, you know, I want, I want him to change how do you respond? Oh, that I do get a lot of. Oh, okay. Um, just because um, when people are still in the relationship, I mean, you're doing everything you can to survive it, right? So, 
um, you know, if that means like I can somehow make this better by fixing the other person, then I'll be okay. Um, so I have a lot of compassion for that. And I, I think I sort of, you know, with a lot of softness, I have my hand on my heart. And I'm like, I really hear that you want to make this better and that you're trying to make it okay for you. I, and I wish I had a good answer for you. I wish that we could change the other person to make it safe. And I just say, and I can't do that for you. We can't make the other person stop hurting you by changing you. The only person that can stop hurting is that person. How would you characterize the programs that I was referring to that are being piloted in New York, which are based on the premise that, and are responding to that request and desire, uh, and based on the premise that they feel like there is hope and that we shouldn't give up on the abuser and that they, they can change. According to these folks involved, they're responding to the desire for the survivor to do so, and they're getting permission from the survivor to have relationship counseling. Is it informed consent, though, I wonder? Maybe that's one way to look at it. Like, I I think, yeah, people come into my office saying, yeah, I want to work on the relationship. I want us to get better. But the informed part would be, you know, here's what we know about relationship counseling when there's abuse involved. And it's my job as the therapist to say, I know that it increases the risk of violence. I know that these programs don't work because there's evidence to show that. Uh, I know that, in fact, it makes it worse because when um, abusive people go through relationship counseling or typical anger management programs, they get um, better language around their abuse and making it easier for them to hide what they're doing. The abuse doesn't actually get better. I see. So the point is that if there isn't the context for for understanding and having access to the research around what's worked and what's not worked and what the risks are of doing these things, um, it's not really informed consent on the part of the survivor to agree to participate in something like this. Yeah. Okay. Of course, it's natural to say, I want to save uh, my relationship. I want to keep the family together, um, especially when there's maybe um, societal pressure to do that, um, guilt to do that. Um, I think it's our responsibility as clinicians to, um, you know, to really help people understand, yeah, what's involved and there may be other options like accountability programs for abusive people that, that address power and control issues that do not involve the survivor. Well, I actually liken it to a healthcare provider. If a patient goes to a doctor with a pre-existing condition and has a heart attack, for example, and smokes, you know, the, the doctor knowing that smoking has certain health risks, not just to the a regular healthy individual, but someone who's already had a heart attack would um, be engaged in malpractice to say, okay, yeah, you go ahead and continue to smoke because you want to without presenting the statistics and the facts to help them navigate that choice better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. So this is the point at the conversation where we arrive at the engendered questionnaire. 
I've adapted the James Lipton Inside the Actors Studio questionnaire. And um, I'd love to ask you, first question, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Everything feels at stake. You know, the, the more you just look at the research and see things like, you know, you go through the ACEs study and you see people's health outcomes when they've gone through abuse early in their lives. You can look at financial outcomes and see the impact of abuse. You can look at, you know, just the fact that people are dying and see the impact of abuse. Like everything is at stake. Yeah, I that's my answer. What gives you hope? I mean, I'm looking around and continuing to see people do good work. Um, I just, um, for example, completed a manual that's that's going to go across Canada that all the settlement workers here will have access to so that um, people who have immigrated here and are um, accessing settlement services, their workers will now have a better understanding of intimate partner violence once the manual is you know, completed and out to everyone. So, you know, that's really great. Um, most people... Um, uh, in immigrant communities are not going to be accessing traditional services, but they will access settlement services. So that's really cool. Well, I, even though it doesn't may not apply specifically to us here in the U.S., um, I would love if you could share that with us when you, when you have access to it. Oh, yes. Once it's out, it's going to be published on their, their website. Um, so I will definitely send that to your way. Great. And final question. What can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? Um, well, here in Alberta, the big piece that we're working on is believing survivors. We know that people don't lie about uh, abuse, um, whether it be domestic violence or sexual abuse. And so when someone tells you that they've gone through an abusive experience to simply start by believing them, um, even if the person that they're talking about is someone that you know, or doesn't seem like a person to do something like this, um, that that is always a good place to begin. Um, and from there, um, I'm always a fan of helping connect people with therapists that are trained in trauma. Um, so um, that could be a modality like somatic experiencing or EMDR or sensory motor psychotherapy or some of these means that can help them move forward so they don't have to continue carrying the, the intensity of the experience. Um, and they, that would help with things like reducing hypervigilance, flashbacks, um, you know, any of the, the bodily experiences they might be um, experiencing from the trauma. Nicole, I've really enjoyed our conversation today and I appreciate you being on our show. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna 
k-a-n-d-u-i-t.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. Music.